When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, I know this isn't the Zach Bain episode that I said it was going to be on Halloween. I've been saying a lot of things lately. I was in the middle of recording it and something about it just didn't seem right. So I'm going to go back to the drawing board and redraft that last part. It will be out soon, but I just wasn't happy with it and I wouldn't be happy putting out something that I'm not happy with. So it's so facto. That's where we are. But I have a little something here that I think you'll like. A little more of a return to form. So, I'd like you all to accompany me on a voyage through imagination. A place that lies just between shadow and light. Where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein. And this is Haunted American History. For many people... The mere thought of haunted houses can be terrifying in and of itself. After all, there's something about the idea of spirits trapped between worlds that gives us the goosebumps and leaves us staring into the distance with wide, unblinking eyes. However, despite the prevalence of horror movies and games, ghosts aren't real. Haunted houses are instead the product of stories that have been passed down from generation to generation over hundreds of years as a means to scare children into behaving. At least that's what I tell myself to help me get some sleep. The origins of the haunted house date back to 19th century London, when a series of illusions and attractions introduced the public to a new form of gruesome entertainment. 1802 was a pivotal year for introducing people across Europe, and eventually North America, with some disturbing concepts through exhibitions. One such exhibition was brought to the masses by a woman named Marie Tussaud, who scandalized British audiences with an exhibit of wax sculptures depicting decapitated French figures, including King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, which were so remarkably accurate due to its life-life presentation. It wasn't until she established her permanent London exhibit that she dubbed her gallery the Chamber of Horrors, which has stuck ever since. At the turn of the 20th century, as Rebecca McKendry described in Fangoria magazine, Relatives of modern horror houses began to experiment with macabre themes. In Paris, the Grand Guignon Theater became notorious for its stage depiction of graphic dismemberment, made famous by director Max Maury's boasts that he judged each performance based on how many times someone left the theater from shock during it. In 1915, an English fairground in Liphook debuted one of the first ghost houses, an early type of commercial horror attraction the public appetite for horror was growing steadily. Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, tells Smithsonian Magazine that Halloween-themed haunted houses emerged from a need by city officials to find a way to distract rowdy children while they were misbehaving during this spooky season. They came in about the same time as Trick or Treat did, she says. Those first haunted houses were very primitive. Groups of families would decorate their basements and hold house-to-house parties. Kids could spook themselves by traveling from basement to basement and experiencing different scary scenes. This 1937 party pamphlet 
describes how parents could also design trails of terror to spook their children. This effect may seem familiar to anyone who's ever been disappointed by a subpar scare. God help you if you charge money for something like this. I don't know about you, but I'm a sucker for a haunted house, even though they scare the shit out of me. But I've been burned in the past by places that claim to be terrifying and end up being as scary as Chinese buffet pizza. This pamphlet reads, An outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts and witches in the cellar or attic. Hang up old fur strips or raw liver on the walls, where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners. Damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling touch their faces. Doorways are blocked so that guests must crawl through long dark tunnels. At the end, they hear a plaintive meow and see a black cardboard cat outlined in luminous paint. Ugh. The haunted house didn't become a cultural icon, though, until Walt Disney decided to build one. Disneyland's Haunted Mansion opened in 1969, nearly two decades after Disney first approved the project. The attraction, which was designed in the style of the Evergreen House and the Winchester Mystery House, quickly became a success. I know, I've talked about the Haunted Mansion in the past, but I love it so much I'm going to do it again. In a single day shortly after its debut, more than 82,000 people passed through the Haunted Mansion. The attraction centerpiece is a grand hall, a 90-foot-long ballroom scene of dancing ghouls at a birthday party. Disney brought the scene to life through exceptionally complex series of illusions known as Pepper's Ghost, which used refracted light to project and shape ethereal images. A lot of the professional haunters will point to one thing, and that's Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. It was the start of the haunted attraction industry, Lisa Morton says. The attraction was revolutionary, as she explains in her book, Trick or Treat. What made the Haunted Mansion so successful and so influential, however, was not its similarity to haunted houses and dark rides, those tawdy carnival haunted houses of the past, but its use of startling new technologies and effects. Ghosts were no longer simply sheets hung in trees, but they were actual shimmering translucent figures that moved, spoke, and sang. A witch wasn't just a rubber-masked figure bent over a fake cauldron, but a completely realistic bodiless head floating in a crystal ball conducting a complex seance. God damn do I love that attraction. Within a few years, the haunted house had spread across the country. The United States Junior Chamber, also known as the Jaycees, became famous for raising money through its haunted houses. The fundraising venture was successful enough to spawn its own how-to guide. In California, Knott's Berry Farm began hosting its own Halloween night attractions which soon transformed into a multi-week slate of events. Every year, a man named Bob Burns attracted national media attention for his detailed recreations of classic horror movies. As Hollywood began to embrace slasher movies like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th, the haunted house industry reaped the benefits. The horror boom fueled demand for scary attractions, not to mention cross-promotional advertisements. If you went to a haunted house in the 1980s and 90s, you would have seen a lot of Freddy Krueger, Jasons, and Pinhead. The haunted house industry really followed the movie industry at that time. Larry Krishner, president of Haunted House Association, a trade group for haunted house operators, tells Smithsonian.com. Professional haunted houses emerged as a force in the same era, quickly outspending nonprofit groups like the JCs. Then tragedy struck. A fire at a haunted house in New Jersey trapped and killed eight teenagers. In the aftermath of their deaths, attractions were shut down, and politicians enacted stronger safety regulations. 
volunteer organizations struggled to compete against new competition under the tougher rules. Soon, many were forced out of business. It was a watershed moment for the industry, says Kirshner. The JCs got pushed out because their haunted houses were fairly basic. It was based on the premise that people would volunteer. But when you have people opening big haunted houses with lots of advertising, that's hard, he says. Over the last few decades, the number of professional haunted houses erupted. Kirshner estimates that roughly 2,700 of them operated nationwide last year. A large haunted house attraction can reportedly earn $3 million during the Halloween season. And the industry is worth $300 million, according to an NBC report. These days, haunted houses are no longer just about creepy characters and hyper-realistic horror. Instead, the industry has flocked to all sorts of new extreme frights. Zombie runs, escape rooms, and experiences seemingly designed to traumatize people. How long will these successes last? Can the haunted house last another half century? And if it does, what will it look like? Kirchner has doubts that the haunted house is here to stay. If I was to guess, I'd say no, he says. Every business will eventually fail, so we just want it to last as long as possible. Personally, I think he's very much off the mark. A Halloween without haunted houses? That's a scary thought. San Pedro, California. In 1988, Jackie Hernandez was rebuilding her life. She was just 23, but had a young son and a daughter on the way. Problems in her marriage caused her to strike out on her own, and she thought she'd found the perfect place to finish school and start a new life. About a month after she moved in, the strange sound started. First, it sounded like pebbles falling through the walls. Then, every night, Jackie heard a high-pitched sound that sent shivers down her spine and made her ears and head ache. Following the sound, she comes to the attic. The push-up trap door that is only accessible with a ladder is open, but Jackie never opened it. One night, Jackie's friend Susan was over. Their chat was interrupted by a loud bang from the kitchen. When they investigated, they found the picture that had been hanging on the wall was now on the counter, leaning against the backsplash. The nails it had been hanging from were on the table, standing up straight on their heads. Tina Lawler, a neighbor and friend of Jackie's, often babysit for Jackie's son Jamie. It was late and Tina hadn't heard any noise for a while, so she went to check on Jamie. As she made her way towards his room, the boy's bedroom door opened for her. She went in and checked on him, closing the door behind her. When she turned to leave, the door again was open for Tina. One day when Jackie and Tina were cooking, Tina saw blobs of light in the corner of the kitchen ceiling. Tina asked Jackie if she put up a new light fixture. Confused by this question, Jackie looked in the direction Tina was facing and saw with her own eyes the swirling orb of light. Jackie ran for her camera and took pictures, but suddenly the camera stopped working. Tina took the camera, pointed it out the kitchen window. She jumped as she saw the face of an emaciated, skeletal old man through the viewfinder, but when she pulled the camera down, there was nobody outside. Not knowing what to do, Jackie called up her ex-husband, Hal, whom she was still remained on good terms with. Al didn't really believe her at first, but came over anyway to try to help his ex-wife see that maybe her eyes were playing tricks on her, and being alone in the house was making her imagination run wild. He suggested calling out to the spirit, asking it to show itself. After doing so and waiting around for a while, nothing happened. After Al left... Jackie went into the kitchen closet to grab a snack and found Al's name written hundreds and hundreds of times in the closet on the wall. With the A in blue ink, 
and the L in red. Susan continued to encourage Jackie to tell the landlord. When Susan and Jackie were out for a walk and bumped into the landlord and his wife, Susan couldn't stop herself. She mentioned the happenings. The landlord, being a very religious man, suggested calling in priests. The priests were skeptical and believed Jackie was looking at too many horror movies. The day they came, Jackie's son Jamie would not stop crying, and Jackie asked him if they thought her baby was possessed by a demon or a devil, and that's why he's crying like this. The next day, Jackie had a representative from social services show up unannounced. The priests had reported that Jackie was on hallucinogens and was pregnant. Jackie resolved to never say anything to anyone ever again. When Jackie gave birth to her daughter Samantha, she didn't want to bring her to the house, but she really didn't have a choice. While she brought in groceries one day shortly after giving birth, Jackie was stunned by the magnetic letters on the fridge spelling, Get the Hell Out. Nothing else had been touched. Jackie was afraid of going to sleep. She gathered Jamie onto a daybed with her, and Samantha slept in a bassinet beside them. One night, she was rousted by the sound of breathing. She followed the sound to her son's bedroom, where she sees a man sitting on her son's bed. He disappeared, but every single shade in the house suddenly shot up. Jackie was terrified, but tried to hide it from the kids. Susan continued to encourage Jackie to talk to someone, but Jackie wouldn't. Jackie saw blood in the sink while washing dishes. Blood that also came out of the kitchen cabinets, pulled on the floor and surrounded her. She grabbed a number out of the yellow pages for what she thought was a parapsychologist, but was really for a paranormal team. Al was visiting Jackie, and the kids that day, the paranormal group, arrived. The team began to interview her, asking her about her experiences. Mid-interview, the crew's camera light went out. After a few moments, the light came back on. The team's photographer attempted to go up into the attic to take photos. As he is climbing up the ladder to enter the attic, Al follows him upstairs and goes to the kids' room to entertain them and keep them out of the way. Al, who had been sitting on Jamie's bed, is freaked as he suddenly hears someone whisper, Tell them to get the hell out of here, in his ear. Seconds later, Al heard the photographer yell from the attic. The photographer insisted something took the camera right out of his hands. His initial skepticism disappeared at that moment. Barry, who was the team's lead investigator, followed the photographer into the attic to find the camera. Barry's video camera battery failed after a few seconds. When they finally found the camera, the body was in one place and the lens was in another. The team quickly came down, did one more short interview with Jackie, and then left. The last night Jackie spent in the house, the entity decided to play with her kids' toys. It threw a beach ball out into the living room. She closed her eyes for a second, and when she opened them, something was holding her down and she couldn't breathe. When it finally released her, she grabbed a baseball bat and decided it was time to fight back. She went up into the attic herself and once again called out to the entity. It showed itself. And the surprise of seeing a figure appear out of thin air knocked her through the trapdoor and sent her crashing down to the second floor. She grabbed the kids and ran out of the house. Grabbing the phone, Jackie called Barry and begged for help. The line was cut off mid-conversation. Barry and his team returned to the house to investigate. The photographer and Gary, the sound recordist, go up into the attic. They find nothing until Barry and Jackie begin to have a very bad feeling wash over them. The photographer is then suddenly dragged away. Gary goes after him with the small camera as his only light. He finds the photographer up against the roof support, his head at an odd angle and a noose around his neck that's supported by an old nail. 
The nail snaps under the man's weight and sends him falling a few inches to the ground. Jackie and the kids left the house that night, with the team. They moved away, and Jackie no longer experiences paranormal phenomena. Public records show that other people have rented the house, but none have stayed longer than a couple of months. House hunting is hard, especially in today's market. When a good deal pops up, you got to jump on it. So when Adam saw the listing on Realtor for the small bungalow that was available for rent right outside of the town he worked in, he knew he needed to act quick. It was a one-bedroom, one-bath, 800-square-foot ranch-style house, but that was the kicker. It was a house. If he landed this, he would be able to get out of his apartment. No more smelling the neighbors cooking. No more hallway screaming matches. No more races from the kids down the way, up and down the hall at random hours of the night. In Adam's mind, this was the chance to lead the life he wanted. A little elbow room. The night before his appointment to see the place, he stopped by his parents' house for dinner. They loved the idea of him getting into a place like this. The opportunity to have a little bit of outdoor space to call your own was a luxury that you really couldn't pass up. His younger sister was away at college, so dinner now just consisted of mom, dad, and grandpa. Showing his dad the listing, the man had two comments. This is a little further from work. You better keep your car tuned up. And, this place has been listed for almost 200 days. Something's got to be wrong with it. I better come with you tomorrow. His mom, on the other hand, was very excited. Showing him all the places he could put his furniture, and the long side yard could be great for entertaining. It had a lovely little fire pit and a small patio off the back door. Grandpa only wanted to see his TikTok videos. He was particularly fond of the One Chip Challenge. That was Adam's most popular video, and the one that got the most views. He tried to capitalize on the popularity that video got, but nothing else ever hit. His grandfather still loved them, though. That grizzled old war vet would laugh his ass off at them. The next afternoon, Adam pulled up to the house, and Dad was already standing out front with the realtor with his arms crossed in front of him and gesturing with his head in the direction of the roof. Adam gets out of the car and joins them. Roof looks old, Adam. I'm not buying the place, Dad. That's the landlord's problem. Is he coming? Adam asked the realtor. The agent told him that the landlord lived out of state, but he had a crew that came and maintained the property, and they would still come and mow the lawn and take care of anything that went wrong inside the house, free of charge. It was included in the rent. Adam joined the real estate agent inside while Dad stayed outside to look around. The layout was small. You entered into a living room, which was pretty big room considering. There was room for a small couch, and you could tuck a table into the back corner since there was no dining room and the kitchen was way too small to fit anything else besides a person. The one bedroom was pretty long as well. There was plenty of space for his furniture and the few belongings he had. Plus, this place had a garage, and a yard which he was dying to look at. And there was a washer and dryer in the garage too. Bonus. Once he was outside, he knew there was no questions about it. This was the place for him. His dad was standing across the street talking to one of the neighbors. Classic dad. As curious as he was, he knew to wait and let his dad come over to him. He didn't want to interrupt. And he didn't really have to wait very long. His dad was marching over with what seemed like some pretty important news. Adam, hey, did this guy tell you that two people were killed in this place? Betty left out that information. What? Really? Yep. Guy across the street told me. Funny shit goes on in this place, he said. No wonder it's been empty for so long. I knew it. 
Both men looked over at the agent, and surprisingly, he didn't disagree. He told them the story of the last tenants. They were a young couple, and about 16 years ago, they were murdered inside this house. The killer was never found. No murder weapon and no trails of blood, fingerprints, or anything. It's like they were ripped apart by the air. The couple's family told stories about how they always said the house was haunted. That furniture would move and there was always knocking, sometimes banging on the walls and pipes. And before them, sometime around 1946 or 47, a man who had just returned home from deployment lived here. And he was found hanged in the garage. There were strange circumstances around his death too. He was hung, but there was no ladder or stool in the garage for him to have stood up on to tie the rope to the support beam. He was just there. After hearing this, Adam wasn't turned off. He wanted the place. His dad thought he was crazy. And maybe he was a little, but he had one thing in mind. If there was something here, and he could get a video of it, oh, that's sure to go viral. Much to his parents' protests... Adam moved in the next week, and his first month was quiet. He was beginning to think that the neighbor and realtor were full of it, until the knocking started. The first time he heard it, it woke him up out of a dead sleep. He turned on all the lights and rushed around the house looking for where it could be coming from. Maybe the heat moving through the old pipes, but it was too uniform. The same tapping every night. He began to record it, and just as he thought, the views started pouring in. Adam and his knockers were a viral sensation, and not for the reason that knockers usually are. I thank you. Eventually, it started to get worse. The knocking got louder, and the things in the house began to move around. It was one night when he was on his way to the kitchen to grab a drink, that he decided maybe to take a little break from this place and go crash on his parents' couch for a few nights. All the kitchen drawers were open, and all the knives were laid out on the small counter. He spent the rest of his night in his car, away from his house, in his job's parking lot. That day after work, he went to his parents. Going over the happenings with his folks and trying to figure out what to do, his grandfather wanted to know if he had any of this stuff on video. He sure did. Can you play them for me? You know I love your videos. Yeah, sure. This one's got more views and likes than the potato chip one you like, Grandpa. He handed his phone to his grandfather and pressed play. After that one's done, just swipe up and the next one will play. They're really creepy. So it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I just got woken up. Hold on, let's see. Oh. Look, there's nobody here. What is going on? Huh. Over and over and over. I don't know what to make of it. And then just like that, it stops. Here we go again. Right on cue. This is louder this time. I'm definitely not faking this, so I don't know. Look, there's nobody in the house. I'm by myself. 
Adam, can you uh, play that for me again? His grandfather said with a worried and puzzled look on his face. Yeah, sure, Grandpa. Is everything okay? I don't know. Just, just, just play them again. Here we go, Adam man. did just that. Right on cue. What's wrong, Grandpa? You, you, you're freaking me out. This time. It's been years. That's tap coat. We used to use that in Nam. POWs used so it to talk to one another. Nobody in the, house. the room got quiet, and all attention was on his grandfather. Adam's father spoke up. What's it saying, Dad? Grandpa looked up at Adam. You can't go back there. It's a warning. What's it say? Adam asked excitedly. Get out. He's coming. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Reminder that you can get my episodes ad-free on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, that's the best way. Anybody wants to send an email, message, social media, all that fun stuff. The links to all those things are in my show description. I'd love to hear from you. I like it a lot. So please, stop by, send me a message, a little note. It's all greatly appreciated. And for those of you who stick around all the way to the end, I want to tell you about the new podcast I have coming out. Anyone who's a fan of the history portion of this show, this is something that's right up your alley. It's called Last Meal. It's essentially me deep diving into death row inmates, life, crimes, and last meal choice. And trying to figure out why they chose that as a last meal. So, that's something you're interested in, a little true crime action. Head on over and hit subscribe. Last meal. And uh, until next time. Later, folks.